0: I'm Addison Brown, and this is the Emerging World Project podcast. What are you doing here? There is a lot going on in the world, and admittedly and happily, women are taking a front seat. The driver's seat in the many important changes that need to happen if we are in fact to survive what is now the time of the sixth mass extinction this is truly an uplifting look into the work that Chloe Dominique and Paula have devoted their lives to work in conservation in many different ways have you ever seen one of those images of an elephant Hanging upside down being lifted onto a flatbed truck seemingly being transported somewhere but where and why and what the heck does that have to do with me we humans are interconnected to all living things this series will not only introduce you to some pretty amazing humans but you will gain a deeper insight into a world that might seem a world away, but it is not. All life is interdependent. We're calling this series The Others because friends, there are so many other things in the world that need our love.
1: Hello everyone, this is Marla. On this episode, we are so excited to be talking to a real life jungle doctor.
0: You heard that, right? The jungle doctor's in the house. So, what does a jungle doctor do? Well, she has some pretty amazing stories about having to dart a wild giraffe from an airplane. Recently, Chloe had the
1: difficulty of looking after the many koala bears that suffered in their devastating bushfires in Australia. And get this, Chloe lives on Kangaroo Island in South Australia. So, stick around. And this is sure to be a wild chat.
0: Without further ado, let's catch up with our wildlife veterinarian, Chloe. Chloe?
1: Hello, thank you so much for having me.
0: It is really wonderful to have you join us. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And too.
1: I know you had to chase me a bit. I'm sorry about that, but I'm so happy we could find a time now
0: well that's what happens when you want to talk to the jungle doctor chances are she's running around somewhere <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> chasing koala bears or something <laughs> no i um i understand i think a lot of us have been thrown off um in the last year you know going on over a year absolutely right absolutely. yes so no,
1: it's, it's very strange to think about that it's been over a year hasn't it
0: yes yes mm-hmm. i, I want to get to talking about how the pandemic has affected your work but first i really like to start these talks um asking you about when you first noticed your relationship to the natural world
1: yeah of course um that is It's a really great question, and my answer is my childhood. So, between about the ages of 11 and 13, I grew up on Lord Howe Island. And for anyone who doesn't know Lord Howe, it's a tiny little island off the coast of Australia, off the east coast, and it's somewhere in between sort of Sydney and Brisbane. So, it's a tropical, tiny little slice of paradise. There are only about 300 people on the island when I lived there. Um, Shoes were very much optional. There was a tiny little school, uh, but we didn't really attend that much. We spent our days sort of swimming in the lagoon and and jumping off the the rocks into the water. So it was just such a beautiful place to live. And I obviously didn't realise it at the time, but it had a really big impact on my life. And after after living in such a pristine place and such a shining example of the natural world, I just couldn't imagine doing anything else with my life than A, being in it somehow, and, and B, trying to do what I could in some small way to protect and conserve it, uh, what we have. Um, so so that definitely set me on my path to where I am now. And I am really, really thankful I had those, those years on that little island because uh, it's, I can recognise how fortunate I was, and it's quite an unusual place to spend your childhood. So yes, I'm very grateful to my mum for that.
0: It sounds incredibly magical. Do you, was there, um, it it really does, it sounds really beautiful. Was there something that happened in particular that made you notice that things needed to be protected, per se?
1: Uh, Well, at the time, uh, I definitely sort of observe different things happening uh, in the in the environment, and Lord Howe Island is a, a real hub for researchers and nature lovers mm. just by the nature and the way that it is. So, uh, during my time, there were always a lot of a lot of scientists on the island going out in the boats and conducting various studies that I was fascinated in. So that obviously sort of I guess started to make me aware of the scientific world even though I was only very young at the time. We also had Sir David Attenborough come over and and call it one of the most majestic places he's ever seen and I obviously was very inspired by that and continued to follow his work and although I didn't meet him on the island he just came over at a different time but his sort of reception of the place Uh, Really I reflected on that and it sort of made me aware of his work and and following it ever since has been a huge Inspiration, so no, I didn't really pick up on the specific problems uh, facing the environment or natural world until I was much older but I definitely became aware of Of the delicate balance of everything and and sort of aware of nature from a really young age due to that experience
0: Uh aha, so do you feel like you are living a purpose? Did you ever have any interest in anything else? That's what I'm gathering.
1: <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, I, I absolutely <laughs> feel like I'm living a purpose. Mm. I think I'm just so lucky to get to be involved in this field because I find so much meaning in it. And through having that meaning, it just it just gives me such such a sense of purpose. and. They're just little things like when you're really tired, but you have no problem getting out of bed anyway. I just think that's Mm. when you know that you might've found your little spot in the world. And I think that I found mine. So did I ever consider anything else? Uh, There were a few points here and there. I never strayed too far from the path of being a vet and something to do with animals. But I have to admit, I've always really loved writing. So I did consider journalism and I've always been fascinated by the sky. And so I briefly thought about being a pilot, even though I'm very scared of flying. So I'm, I'm pretty sure I made the right choice.
0: <laughs> That's pretty funny. I love how you, uh, on your Instagram account, I love how you combine your writing. I could tell from, from the very beginning that um, you're a storyteller. Oh, thank you.
1: Yes, you tell thank wonderful you so
0: stories and they they end up being educational and funny. Um, which I just I love because I, I sense that this type of work is 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 you have to remain grounded, which is going yes. my next question is going to bring us around to that um, after the fires um, and the massive loss of wildlife and koala in particular, can you share? with us the types of things that you needed to do to stay grounded?
1: Yeah, of course. It was obviously a really challenging time for everyone involved. Uh, Just terrific. I have a very dear friend of mine, Felicity, who is a vet here on the island. And she um, actually coordinated basically the entire response uh, in terms of the veterinary medical side of things and watching her go through that um, was it was just quite awe-inspiring the way that she handled it, uh, but obviously it took a really large toll after, so everyone had different experiences and different levels of involvement. So I can't speak for everyone, but in terms of what I do, I find it really helpful to um, obviously take some time for myself, but also to, in general life, I try to reflect on the good stories. So. At least what I find is that for all of the the bad stories and and the horrific cases that you come across and the the just catastrophes like we saw last summer with the bushfires, there's always a, a good story to not necessarily counteract it, but just to remind yourself of. And the ones that I like to remind myself of are people doing good out there, of which there are so many. So I just remind myself of those people. An example that comes to mind is Just earlier this week, I was talking with my friend who is moving giant sable in Angola, so uh, a country in Africa. And it's the national symbol, the national animal of the the country. And they are facing extreme pressures and and thought to be really on the brink of extinction. and, And it's his project that's essentially trying to gather a critical number of these animals in a confined area in a in a park and establish a breeding program to basically bring this animal this national symbol of the, of the country back um, from the brink of extinction so that work is just amazing I mean there's a team here locally in Australia in Melbourne that are 3D printing new coral reefs and um, it's like a giant Lego set and they're connecting them underwater and submerging them off the coast of the Maldives as a trial so there's just really amazing work happening and I know it doesn't uh, counteract or substitute for all of the pain that you could focus on but me personally it's always a a really quick and effective pick-me-up when I remind myself of yep there's some setbacks there's some horrible things going on but there's also some wonderful things.
0: Yes, indeed. That's really beautiful. Uh, I think that as a, a jumping off point, um, being able to look at the the positive that comes from it and yeah, it does work. It really
1: does help. And uh, also just for a, a more relevant or I suppose day-to-day reminder here on Kangaroo Island, it's just seeing the Regeneration in the bush, so Mm. that's really encouraging. Uh, It is, it's not happening everywhere, and there's been some problems that have come from it. I mean, the fire was particularly ferocious, and I know that fires are traditionally. Um, or can be quite beneficial to the ecosystem in terms of helping to germinate seeds in the in the soil. But this fire in parts was particularly ferocious, and it actually sort of killed off the seed bed rather than rather than helped to mm. germinate. So it has mm. been really destructive in parts. But there are parts of the bush that are that's recovering, and that is incredibly encouraging to see. So there's local reminders as well. Um, so I just try to look for the good wherever it may be, and remind myself of that because I think it might get a little bit disheartening otherwise.
0: Do you ever have a really good cry?
1: Yeah, I think everyone does, don't they? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I Mm -hmm. would like to meet the person who doesn't. I do, I definitely (laughs) do. Um, Mm -hmm. Not all the time, obviously, but there are some times when you just can't help it. And I think that's okay too. Uh, It's just about keeping a balance and recognizing in yourself how you are going and how you're managing with your workload, no matter what it may be. And uh, taking action accordingly to make sure, first and foremost, that you're okay. Because if you don't do that, then you can't really do anything else, can you? say so that always needs to be in the forefront of your mind.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, just to give uh, people a sort of perspective in terms of numbers, um, as a result of those fires, what was the population of the koala and what is the population yes. now?
1: So our estimates, we were actually keeping quite a good eye on the koala population here on Kangaroo Island for the fires because we had a bit of the other problem that the mainland has. So uh, within Australia, there's only one species of koala, but there's thought to be sort of two subspecies. That's the northern and the southern. So the northern koala is having a lot of problems with habitat loss and fragmentation um and hit by a car and and dog attacks the southern koala on the other hand the population is a little bit more stable and the population here on kangaroo island has thrived Uh, so the koala was actually introduced to the island close to 100 years ago now and what started with a small seed population of I want to say around nine so not many exploded uh into the 50,000 that we were estimating just prior to the fires and that was actually problematic because the the ecosystem here was unable to support such a huge population of animals and the koala is also one of the only animals that uh, is unable to self-regulate its numbers to a certain extent or to mm. a, an effective extent. So they will literally eat themselves out of house and home and then you'll have a matter of a humane welfare issue with starvation. Mm-hmm. So koala populations need active management and here on the island, they were being surgically desexed. So, females every year were being caught and desexed as part of our population control. But uh, that's no longer needed now after the fires, with the latest estimates suggesting that we have around 5,000 individuals remaining on the island. So, that desexing program will cease, and we are now trying to support the, the population once more.
0: Wow, wow. So I read a story. Speaking of stories, of um how when you were growing up, the koala was just you know like I don't know <laughs> a dog. I don't know dogs running around. And but when this happened, obviously you took a deeper look into your relationship. Yes. Too? Yes.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And when I married my husband as well, I mean. I'm not sure what it's like for other people, but growing up and then going to veterinary school, I just wanted to graduate and go overseas and work with yeah. the amazing animals, like yeah. in Africa and in Asia. And I never even thought about the animals that we have here. And it wasn't until I had been away for about five years, met my husband who's from Germany, and moved back here, I started to develop more of an appreciation for the animals that we do have in Australia and also the fact that they're facing really serious challenges and problems and uh, that sort of made me refocus my attention back at home to a certain extent and then having the privilege albeit under terrible circumstances to work with the koalas last summer it was then that I really decided that no these are really beautiful and amazing animals and Mm. I definitely reconnected with them they were no longer the terrifying bears that Used to growl outside my window in the <laughs> evening when I was a child.
0: <laughs> and if you let them Which was in, truly,
1: truly frightening.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness. I think i remember hearing a recording of the sound of one of them probably (laughs) fell out of my chair like what yeah
1: (laughs) it's pretty confronting isn't it (laughs) now imagine being five years old and you hear it directly out your window oh my
0: goodness (laughs) about
1: two in the morning yeah you sit straight up in bed and (laughs) you become very alert (laughs) as a child (laughs)
0: You're getting no sleep whatsoever.
1: Very vigilant children down here in Australia.
0: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I love that. Okay, so I want to move to um, a little uh, heavier topic, and that is um, the elephant translocation. And I know that I told you that we were going to talk about this. Before we get started, I want you to start to think about how this when you start to share with us um, why we're doing this and then how does that circle back around and connect to all of us? So we're gonna get into a little biodiversity here. Okay,
1: yeah, so the elephant translocation. So in Africa, I was fortunate or I am fortunate to go over and participate in some work there from time to time. And it's there that I've had some of my most amazing experiences, and I've been very lucky to learn from some of the best veterinarians in the field that work out out in the field in Africa. So I've had some great experiences of which many of them, if not most, are to do with some sort of translocation, as you touched on. So the movement of animals from one place to the next, and there's a whole lot of reasons that you might move an animal. Uh, might be due to poaching pressures, so you see that particularly well-known one is the rhino under a huge amount of pressure to a lesser extent under still a huge amount of pressure elephants for their tusks so these can be sold on the the black market Uh, so yeah a really staggering amount of poaching pressure for those animals Uh, same with giraffe Uh, we have pressures from snares being laid down in certain game reserves and and others having heightened security and, and others maybe less so you also have the threat of drought and changing climate circumstances so within africa a lot of animals are kept within game reserves and national parks and these things are absolutely enormous so further than the eye can see but a lot of the time they are fenced so you've got wild populations of animals within a fenced environment so you've now created an artificial space Mm. that again just like in australia needs active management uh, to stop the, the overpopulation of one species, the decimation of another. Uh, so animals will be moved all the time around Africa from one park to the next and uh, to try and combat a lot of these issues. Uh, then Another really big reason that they'll be moved is due to human-wildlife conflict. So a lot of these national parks and these areas encroach on human settlements or more accurately the other way around so human settlements are expanding everywhere around the world and they're encroaching on wild spaces and with this comes conflict as animals and people come into contact the classic example in Africa is the elephant trampling a farmer's crops or a hungry lion eating a, a farmer's cow and the natural retaliation for these people is yeah. to to attack or to even try and kill the animal which is being a pest and also costing them economically so it's a really really sad circular situation that does lead to a lot of a lot of conflict and it is a huge driver of extinction for many species i mean lions is a really big one Mm. so these are some of the reasons that animals might be moved Uh, for elephants uh, another big one is if they've broken out of these these areas that they're held in so national parks or reserves and they're they've broken into a village or into a neighbouring reserve and they need moving back and so as you can see all, all of these reasons are usually quietly quite intricately linked with us and with human activity be it our, our settlements or our, our fencing or our uh, interfering with wildlife corridors so the natural pathways the natural migratory pathways that they take and uh, as such, they are also be mani- being managed by us. But yeah, so a lot of it's down to human interference. And, and the reason that we're moving them is to, to keep them safe. The bottom line is to keep them safe. And it's no small feat.
0: No, n- not at all. I, it, it's, it seems very complex. Um, many different points of views to consider um, mm. and the interconnectedness of, of it to consider. Um, it, uh, I want to ask you, besides the obvious, that it sucks, um, what is the <laughs> It does. <laughs> it really does. Um, what is the process of wildlife trade, and what are the direct implications to our everyday lives? I know that it, it ends up, it, it, we're in that place right now, aren't we? Yes,
1: yes, we are we are in that place right now. So that's a really great question and a really pertinent one because it would be I guess the number one thing people want to know. Okay, so wildlife trade, A, why is it bad? And and B, what are the direct implications to us? And the answer right now is that you're living in it currently. We all are. We have been for the past twelve or so months. It's not it's not the only implication, but right now it's the most the most in your face and the most confronting, and that is that of emerging infectious diseases, so zoonotic diseases, um, or 75% of emerging infectious diseases are zoonotic, sorry. So they're shared between humans and animals. And as I mentioned before, as humans move in closer proximity to wildlife, the potential for spread and transmission is infinitely increased. So I'm not necessarily talking about COVID-19. I'm just talking about pandemics in general. And as we continue to, our population expand and wild places shrink, and us move into closer and closer proximity and continuing to trade in wild animals, we are increasing ourselves the the risk of exposure and the risk of likelihood of of transmission of zoonotic diseases and subsequent pandemics. So that's one of them and one that we can all sort of relate to now. And we've had a very intricate look at what life would look like in in an era of pandemics or increasing pandemics. And I think that universally we can agree that's something that we don't want to do. Uh, Also, another implication from the wildlife trade or illegal wildlife trade is disbalances in the ecosystem so when you're moving animals when we're causing extinctions we're moving these protective effects of a healthy natural world which by nature is to be in balance so it's a very delicate balance our ecosystem all of the animals all of the plants within it we're in this this web together so we don't operate independently from this web as human beings we're very much part of it um, and and when we are essentially ripping species out of that web, we are really sort of moving towards a potential for collapse and we're seeing that in the the lost sequestration of, of CO2 from the atmosphere. Our climate is changing um, not just losing the forests and the jungles but where the oceans are changing as well and, and um, coral reefs are some of the biggest absorbers of CO2 in the world yep that we're killing them off or they're dying off with this with this changing climate so as you can see everything being interlinked when you move sort of one part of that chain you you rearrange the rest of it Uh, you also got got the potential for more natural disasters with all of this so if you lose the pollinators of the jungle for example so orangutans in Borneo or or forest elephants in in uh, central Africa you destabilise that whole mini ecosystem within itself and these are um, they spread the seeds and disperse the seeds of the jungle if you start to lose that and you, you start to to meddle with the the structure of that then you can see things like in Thailand in the 1980s when they started having staggering problems with landslides mm. for all the excessive logging and again mm-hmm. that's not directly um, wildlife trade in itself but it's all interlinked I mean the the um, destruction of habitats is often linked with many species to the trade in wildlife so you're going to see things like that and also economic which is a huge thing to consider I mean if you yeah. think about it um, the forests and savannas and the tropics of the world have some of the richest biodiversity so it's creating a perfect storm they're also the countries with some of the fewest resources and um, often people in challenging economic circumstances willing to engage in illegal activity or not just willing, they have to, to survive. And then you have huge demand driven often by the West. I mean, the US is one of the largest consumers of illegal wildlife products in the world. Mm. And and you've got that demand just being absolutely fueled and putting pressure on these these areas or geographical regions that are already struggling with their conservation so uh yeah economically it's devastating i mean you're um taking away a huge a huge potential revenue area for these countries i mean the tanzanian economy just to use a recent example i was talking about um after agriculture tourism is the biggest driver of that economy that is being driven by the wildlife in the national Parks that people are coming to see their natural resources, but these natural resources are being decimated at the hands of poachers. So, what what are the Tanzanians going to be left with if we continue on this path? And so, I think that's a really huge thing to think about. Or even the global economy. So, if we want to look at it from a selfish perspective, the global economy is suffering because of illegal fishing activity and illegal logging. I mean, we're losing Thanks. something like 10, ten to twenty billion dollars a year so there's all of those things to consider that's such a such a complicated network and i understand that but it's not just the pure fact of how sad and how tragic it would be to lose a species Mm. which in itself is Mm. enough of a reason to care and to make sure that this doesn't happen but if, if for some reason that's not enough to drive change amongst some people or if that's not what we can agree on, I'm sure that we can agree on our own health and our own economies and everything else that goes with it. So yeah, we, we stand to lose a lot by by this illegal wildlife trade and everything that goes along with it.
0: Yes, I, yes, I understand. Um, um, yeah. I was looking at a report that the World Wildlife Foundation did in 1970, um, and since then, two-third of the wildlife have disappeared, according to that report, mm. and 90% of the fish uh, since 1950.
1: Um it's just staggering when you think about that. If you think about, I'm sure we've all seen those timelines where it goes from like when the, the, you know, the big bang and then the mm. dinosaurs and all, mm-hmm. all that stuff and then our human civilization is the tiny speck on the end of it. Mm-hmm. Then think just how short of a time ago, 50 years ago or 70 years ago when we started to lose, lose these populations at a staggering rate. I mean, it's just happened in the last blink of an eye and it has absolutely reached a crisis point.
0: Absolutely. We are in the sixth mass extinction. There's no denying it. Um, I want people to be able to think about that. I also want people um, that are listening to be able to, um, you know, still walk away uh, feeling like there is something about themselves that they can look at and how they're living. And also that maybe we can talk about some things that they can do on a regular basis. But before we get to that, um, I want to talk about helping wildlife versus letting nature take its course.
1: Mm. Yes, that's an interesting that's an interesting dynamic. I like talking about that topic. <laughs> I do. It's very, it's really interesting. I just, it is, I, I, isn't it? I really I think love the let nature take its course argument because I was wondering, okay, so if you just take a step back and think about that, I mean, how much have we meddled to get to where we are and how much mm-hmm. of what we're doing is artificial at the moment? So mm. you can't really, in my opinion, even though you haven't even asked the question yet, you cannot really essentially go into a room uh, tip everything upside down and throw all of the books onto the floor and jump on top of everything and then walk out of it and say, Oh no, you know, let let mm. the room take mm. its course. What a mm-hmm. terrible example. But do you know what I mean? You can't, mm-hmm. you can't abdicate responsibility at a certain point. or for this example, at the crisis point and say, no, no, let's take a step back and let nature manage this. I mean, yes, that that is not the stage at which we're at.
0: Absolutely. I was, uh, when we first went into lockdown, um, and uh, last year spring. And I would take my walks, and I live in downtown Los Angeles, um, but the the birds that I were seeing were not from this neighborhood. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, one day on my walk, I just whipped around the corner and there was an injured red-tailed hawk um, just right outside the front door of this pretty popular loft complex, and I um, called a friend, and I called my people at the California Wildlife Services in Malibu, um, but I was far away from my car, and it would have taken me a while to get there, so I popped in that building, and I asked the gentleman to just keep an eye on on the hawk, that I would be right back. and. Uh, somebody that I called said to me, oh, just let nature take its course. (laughs)
1: uh, Yes, exactly, exactly. I can't deal with it. (laughs) And I just
0: couldn't deal. I just, and I I really try and have a first, second, and third perspective before I open my mouth. Mm. I think it's Mm. really important in these times to, to be able to do that. I agree.
1: That's my first response. Well, I'm not sure if I would respond to that because you have to pick your battles, don't you? And and you sort of wonder how important it is to argue the point, especially when your friend, I'm sure, was very well-meaning. So mm-hmm. it's not about that, but you have to just wonder how did the hawk get to that position in the first place? Right. At least where I am from, it's usually hit by a car or mm-hmm. by a dog or caught up in a barbed wire fence. So mm-hmm. none of those things are terribly natural. And while there is a merit of course, to letting nature take take its course. There's absolutely, absolutely a merit in that. Uh, it's just not as widely applicable as I feel it's being used in society today. Mm. Just simply for the fact of how much we have meddled, and also for how desperate the situation is now. I mean. To use an example from the um, another example from the conservation world where that is argued all the time, you've got people that argue against the vaccination of wild animals, and this has presented yeah. a really interesting dilemma of late. Because um, I'm not sure if you remember the 2013-2014 Ebola outbreak, mm-hmm. um, and it left left the continent of Africa for the first time, uh, which is when um, there was a, a huge I guess commercial will and value in developing a vaccine against it. And the same thing uh, with polio. So you've got great apes that are susceptible to a lot of our shared diseases. And so they're residing in the mountains of Central Africa and they're susceptible to the flu, just like we are, and to Ebola, to polio. And you have people saying, let nature take its course. Mm. But a lot of these illnesses are being spread from nearby human populations or now by the ecotourism. the ecotourism industry, which I think is fabulous by the way, but you've got people coming in and potentially mm-hmm. spreading diseases to these vulnerable populations of animals and you've got to catch 22 mm-hmm. because this this ecotourism is bringing in valuable revenue that is sustaining and supporting these populations of of local people and also of the animals and the mountain gorillas is a great example of that. So where do you say let nature take its course then when we've again, created a bit of an artificial situation where mm-hmm. there's an increased chance of spread of disease and the people who were arguing against vaccinating wild animals, I think have had to reconsider and relook at their arguments because, because there's also the potential to stop the risk of the next pandemic from that. I mean, if you look at it the other way around, if you vaccinate gorillas against Ebola, you have the chance of curbing future outbreaks in gorilla populations mm. and then if you look at the history of Ebola outbreaks in human populations the vast majority of them have been secondary to an outbreak in a gorilla population because in a lot of countries gorillas are hunted for their meat and they are eat, eaten as bush meat and hence the transmission of, of disease has occurred from from gorilla to human and then from human sort of around the world or around the country So you've got an interesting predicament now where actually it might be the best thing for not only the animals, but also for us to interfere in nature with that one example and and vaccinate certain populations of animals to keep both them safe and us safe. And I think that's just a great example of uh, when you might make a a really strong argument for so-called interfering in nature.
0: Right. Uh, And with all of that, uh, when we speak of coexistence, What would that look like to you, given where we're standing right now?
1: Yeah, coexistence with with the natural world, essentially. So um, that is what it would look like to me, coexistence. By definition, it's Mm. passive. So Mm. there isn't a direct interaction. We have our lives and Mm -hmm. wildlife have their lives. That sounds like a bit of a far off utopia, and I'm not necessarily expecting that to happen. But what I do expect is for there to be a a total shift in the way that we think about and approach our natural world. I mean, right now we're exploiting it to the point of collapse. Species are becoming extinct at over a thousand times the natural rate. You mentioned it before. It's being called the sixth mass extinction of our planet. Uh, We're destroying habitats. Our emissions are out of control. Plastic is choking our oceans. Just the other day, there was another oil spill. This time, off the coast of Israel, I think. So, I think it's time to respect the natural world, and that's what coexistence would look like to me. And and that mm-hmm. would be reflected then in our, you know, international laws and legislations. Mm-hmm. We'd be a, a great place to start. Would be clamping down on international wildlife crime for sure, and making an international commitment to work across country borders on those major issues. Um, moving towards greener alternatives for our energy sources. Australia, I'm looking at you on that one. Uh, Protection for wild habitats and and a re-evaluation of this trade in wild animals. We would also, in this sort of utopian world I'm describing, we wouldn't be keeping exotic animals as Mm. pets anymore. And I don't know how many times I can emphasise this, but Mm -hmm. um, I know I mentioned the USA is a big offender there, there, so there's a lot of countries that are big offenders there. So it's not on anyone's shoulders necessarily, but we really do need to take a long and hard look at ourselves. If the tiger king didn't prompt us into more action, then I'm not too sure what will. Um, right. But for starters, I think social media companies have a, um, a responsibility to regulate photos that are being shared on social media by so called influencers posing with their pet or the pet tigers and pet monkeys. So these animals aren't pets, and we don't want to be encouraging the illegal pet trade. Um, and also passing on conserv- value, conservation values in our education system. I don't know about you, but I didn't receive much of a education about why conservation of the natural world is important, what we have to um, stand to benefit from a healthy ecosystem in terms of our own health and well-being, uh, be it, say, the medicines we derive from plants or the eco-services, that without these sort of services being provided by the natural world, we're going to have to pay for them ourselves. Just so many examples. I was never really taught that in my education, and I think it's important to work it, in, work it into it.
0: We are talking to the Jungle Doctor. We'll be back in just a moment. This is a crisis and also a crisis within human beings where that education did not come at a young age. And here we are trying Absolutely. to, you know, rework it into our daily lives, Absolutely.
1: We're trying to reverse engineer it in a way when it right. should have been taught from the beginning. Right. It's just uh, so simple. It seems obvious now, but that's obviously a really big one. I'm a big believer in the next generation and all of the ideas and passion and enthusiasm and, and smarts and just everything that they have, the whole future rests with them and engaging them in that from a young age. I think is going to be really critical. I think that what's also critical is to find a way to bring nature more into our cities. So the green cities of the future not to sort of paint an alienistic picture it's not too extreme or dramatic for those who are so scared about any form of change Uh, it's just about making cities a little bit more accessible for wildlife and humans to coexist so you look at those photos out of the Netherlands and other countries that have the wonderful wildlife bridges over their highways and just fabulous little ways that we can do that or or supporting our gardens and and planting the plants that are relevant to the pollinators. We have little things like that, so greener cities, and I think with all of these changes even though I see coexistence as a far more passive experience with the natural world I also see it as a far more enriching one so Mm. rather than um, having to travel large distances to get to one little artificial park it'll it'll be more around us and our mental health will benefit there's plenty of studies that are showing that and rather than spending our holidays traveling to Thailand to get a photo with a sedated half-conscious tiger (laughs) instead maybe we could travel somewhere else you know and engage in ecotourism so support initiatives like the mountain gorilla initiative I touched on before so go if you're ever fortunate enough to have a chance to see them in the wild I can assure you it's going to be a far more magical and enriching experience than the tiger option and it's actually going to directly benefit the local communities financially which is money that then will also feed into the conservation of the mountain gorillas because you're placing an intrinsic value on these animals being there and being alive and being in the wild and doing what a mountain gorilla should do and that's what we should be doing more of and that I guess is a really long and poorly worded answer of what I see coexistence (laughs) to be or at least in my mind
0: (laughs) oh boy do I appreciate this conversation my goodness I appreciate it it like nobody's business um (laughs) I love it um Okay, we're gonna to just tone it down a half a, se- a half a notch. I want to be able to peop for people to walk away with a couple of things just from your mind that they can do um in their everyday lives besides wake up. <laughs> yeah,
1: of course. Of course. Um, so... uh,
0: but I wanna narrow it down to um your neighborhood, Australia. Okay. And okay. we didn't get to talk about the thirty thirty initiative, but that this is uh, in relationship to that.
1: Of course, of course. So in Australia, we have a unique set of problems than those facing you in the US. We also have a lot of shared problems, of course, but we do have some very Australia unique problems. And I think I touched on one before. I mean, the first one and what I consider to be our great shame as a country is that we are a very wealthy country, you know, first world country, we have resources. And we have capability, we don't have any excuses, yet we have the highest rate of mammal extinction yeah. of anywhere in the world, anywhere on the planet. Think about that Australia, wow. it's just unbelievable and it's inexcusable, in my opinion. We're also the third largest exporter of fossil fuels, so primarily coal. Um, and again, I am. Um, I think that there needs to be a balance as with everything. I'm not as hardline as uh, some people might expect me to be uh, or others may be. I think that there needs to be sort of a transition to, to greener energy sources. And what I think is that rather than relying so heavily on investing in new options for, for coal and other fossil fuels, we need to be looking a little bit further to the future here in Australia. I mean, what do we have... If you think about it we have space no one can argue that and we have sun so wouldn't that be you would think a perfect opportunity to to start putting in massive massive mm. you know solar farms or mm-hmm. massive wind farms mm-hmm. look, look at all the options we have available to us and we have mm-hmm. the unique opportunity that unlike a lot of other countries particularly in europe we have just so much space; it's ridiculous. So I think we have a few, a few areas in which we are failing, but these are higher up, sort of, I guess, um, government level issues, and that doesn't mean we can't have a have an impact on them. We certainly can, and we could talk about that all day long. But I think what you read, what your listeners might want to take home is what, what we can do on an individual level, because. When I'm feeling a little bit disheartened about everything, I find it really helps to go back and just think about the things that you can have a direct impact on. And the good news is that there are so many, but to keep it down to just a few, one of my favorites is making informed choices in the supermarket because it's something that we each do every single week and we each have a real and tangible power to change. So a few things to look out for, at least in my opinion, are microbeads, so little micro that are usually found in face scrubs and toothpaste. Mm. They're no good. They go straight down the drain into the ocean uh, and they can't even be sort of scooped up or even seen with the naked eye usually because they're so small and they go on and they degrade and they're picked up by filter feeders, which goes on to do a whole lot of horrible things within the body, such as changing the hormonal system, so uh, trying to avoid something like uh, face scrubs and toothpaste that have these plastic microbeads is a huge first step. At the same time, it push, puts pressure on these these companies that are producing such products to mm-hmm. make changes and stop doing that. Uh, we can also reduce our use of single-use plastics that's been drummed into us over and over again, yet it's still being used, and in Australia there's not even a ban on the use of these in mm. every state, including my own. So that's something we can do at an individual level. And we can also, and I like this one, even though not everyone may, but we can we can get involved in, and lobby for greater species protection. I mean, I think mm. we can all agree that we love the koala down here and we're proud of it. It's our one of our national animals. Yet the the koalas in New South Wales and Queensland, so northern koalas are facing a staggering amount of pressure that they might be reclassified as vulnerable to extinction. I mean, what sort of what sort of message does that send out to the world if we let the koala become extinct in Australia? It's just absolutely unfathomable to me. So I think we can be involved in, in local causes like that, signing petitions, lobbying local governments, getting involved in Facebook and Instagram groups. It's all out there, and you can use your voice to make a difference. And we can also use that same voice to insist that we continue to put pressure on the government to sign up to international targets and and goals. Like you mentioned, the 30 by 30 is a wonderful initiative signed by over 50 countries just last month to commit to protecting 30% of the land and sea in the next 10 years. Australia was one of the only countries in the the Western developed world that did not sign the treaty. And just behaviour like that, I think we have the power to to put pressure on here in Australia, and I would encourage everyone to do so. And it's not something I would have said a few years ago, but as I get a little bit older, I realise that we really do have have the power to reach out and do that, and it does make a difference. You just have to see that things are changing slowly but surely. To go back to the single plastics, single use plastics, my state on Monday, so in a few days is banning all use of single-use plastics. So, while wow, that should... Exactly, it's huge. And while wow. it could have come before, we need to celebrate these achievements and recognise them because because a few years ago it would have been unheard of and now we're here and, and that's a really proud place that we should be at. And it's just a reminder that although it seems slow, Uh, Things are changing and that's driven by people. So I would encourage everyone to get involved, become informed shoppers and put pressure on the the topics that they feel are important to them. And if they're looking for one, I would suggest a good place to start is with the koalas.
0: Wow, I I agree. But um, I just want to let you know how wonderful you are and how much I appreciate being able to have this conversation with you being able to oh, having you, so you share not only your time but your knowledge um and i can feel you know i could i can feel your energy around this and it's certainly a voice that we need to hear so i just want to thank you before i ask oh, you
1: Addison, thank you thank you so much it means so much to me and it is such a pleasure to speak with you i can really tell we're so like-minded and kindred spirits and i'm, I'm so so happy that we we're able to have this conversation
0: Thank you. I feel that way as well. So in closing, I want to ask you um, two questions. Yes. Um, Who or what is your greatest influence? And then the last question, can you just tell us a funny story? Okay. Um, Okay. Okay.
1: So yeah. I would, I would love to to start. Okay, okay I'll start with uh, who inspires me. I've got a sort of like a double edged answer to this. The first one is, I'm afraid, very generic and probably shared by about ninety percent of nature lovers in the world. <laughs> but that is Sir David Attenborough. Uh, I've I've been aware of his work from a young age. He was um, able to visit and highly praise the island that I grew up on, and he's just had such a steady and constant influence on. On our behavior and our relationship to the natural world that you can literally see has evolved throughout his life I mean when he started the the conservation was not not a thing people weren't paying attention to it Uh, yet he was just rising to prominence at the time that so many of these these huge pressures were being placed on the natural world so I hate to think where we would be without him in regards to our respect and our knowledge of the natural world and I am just so inspired by how much he has contributed to this space so that would be number one <laughs> number two is all of the people who work in this field so I'm not just mm. talking about scientists but but all of the people so entrepreneurs and and animal husbandry care staff and biologists or even lawyers accountants so you know anyone who's given up their their time to to think about this this matter and and to recognise that we can't go on exploiting the natural world without without giving something back. So I'm inspired by the people who are coming up with all the fabulous new ideas to tackle all of these problems. And I just think, wow, they're amazing. And usually, you know, someone less than 20 years old a lot of the time. And I just think, aren't you incredible? Like the world (laughs) does have a hope that you are in it and what an amazing, inspirational, bright mind you are. So I just think that pretty much on a daily basis. And I'm just so inspired by the next generation of conservationists coming through. So that, that would be who, who inspires me, I think. Um, and the second question is a funny anecdote, which I've been trying to think about <laughs> since you just said it. And I'm trying to think of a funny one. I find it funny, but I think many other people would find it alarming. But I'm going to go with it anyway, because that's sort of what working with wildlife is about. I don't know if we've just become really desensitized to crazy situations or what. But my personal, one of my favourite experiences is going back to translocations, as you brought up before, and it's actually... Working with the giraffe, so moving giraffes <laughs> is just the most ridiculous thing you could ever imagine being involved in. Ridiculous in terms of just how much it feels like you're in a movie set or something. It's <laughs> unbelievable. It's very fast paced. It involves helicopters and trucks and jumping with ropes and, and waking this animal up that so you've just gotten on the ground by wrapping it in this. this it's just something that I cannot explain. And so. <laughs> What essentially happens, to summarize it, is a team darts the animal from the sky, and because giraffes are prone to running and overexerting themselves, you deliberately use an overdose to bring them to the ground really quickly, and because you've given the animal an overdose, there's an interest, intrinsic risk, and you need to reverse the medication, and you also need to get to them quickly because you've just oh my given them a whole bomb amount of drugs. So you've darted an animal from the sky. It's a wild giraffe. It's about 800 kilograms. It's running about 60 k's an hour. I don't <laughs> (laughs) know how many miles that is. It's tearing and it's going through the scrub and you're holding onto the back of a truck. You jump out ahead of it with just a flimsy piece of rope and you're trying to like basically... Uh, brace yourself for impact ahead of this animal that's coming towards you. With a one person on one side of the rope, one person on the other. It hits the rope. You get pulled along with it. You have to run around its legs to try and entangle it, bring it to the ground safely without any of you under it. Then you have to give the the antidote. Then you have guess what? An awake giraffe underneath you now on the ground, and you've got about four people on the neck. It's the, suddenly the biggest trust exercise you've ever entered into in your life because the only thing keeping that animal on the ground is the three other people people on the neck with you because if they were to get off, which is where the funny bit comes in for me at least uh, is if the three other people That are. I'll go back. To keep the now awake giraffe lying completely on the ground (laughs) while you do any of the work that you need to do, you have to use your weight to remove its leverage, which you do so by sitting on the neck with three of your biggest friends. Um, And by sitting there, the animal remains reasonably calm, actually, and it's unable to get up. So you're able to quickly and swiftly proceed with your work. The problem that comes into play is if the others for whatever reason get off the neck but you ask the neck and that's exactly what happened to one of my friends and a wildlife vet when he was working with one of these animals in zimbabwe and there was a epic miscommunication where his three friends jumped off the neck while he was still on it so the giraffe got up obviously Ollie. and it got got to its feet with pete on its neck <laughs> Pete was holding on now riding the neck of a wild giraffe in the middle of the bush in Zimbabwe and through his head as it started to gallop, gallop off into the bush, <laughs> Pete told me he was thinking, right, okay, so I either continue to hold on and go on like a proper ride with this giraffe until goodness knows when or... Or I take my chances and I make the conscious decision to let go of the neck, which is very high off the ground, and curl up into a ball and drop to the ground and hope that one of those enormous legs doesn't get me on the way down and that's what he chose to do and he lived to tell the tale he's still out in the field the best wildlife vet in Africa in my opinion and it's just the most incredible story and having um, been in his position i just can't imagine what it would have been like if that giraffe got up so i just i just think it's the most amazing thing and that would be my answer
0: <laughs> that is unbelievable
1: <laughs> i think it summarizes just the how absurd yet how amazing this work is and it's probably one of my favorites so
0: yeah (laughs) thank you thank you for that just absolutely too much fun I think that's a beautiful (laughs) note for us to end on there's a lot to digest here Um, and once again I want to just express my extreme gratitude for you taking the time to speak with us and share your stories and you are just insanely delightful I want to talk to you again
1: (laughs) I would love that Anderson I would absolutely love that so if I didn't ramble too much and you'd ever like to have me back on please just let me know
0: you're gonna come back all right all right Thanks for hanging out with us. We have only a couple of requests. That is to hit us up on the website, emergingworldproject.org, where you can dig a little bit deeper into our conversations. And remember, friends, be the light in the room.